we are actually going to forego the, the scripture reading. You'll see the two scripture texts for us are 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17, as well as chapter 11, verses 23 and 26. The reason why we're not going to read these at this point is because these scripture passages are actually directly quoted in one of the Heidelberg question and answers that we will be confessing, so it would be redundant for us to do so. So I would encourage you to turn in the back of your Psalter hymnals to 884 and 885. The reason why we are turning there this morning is because I cannot fit all three question and answers in the bulletin. So please turn to 884 and 885. Now, as you're turning there, this last Thursday... January 19th was the 460th anniversary of the first publication of the Heidelberg Catechism. So on January 19th, 1563, the first publication of this catechism was produced in uh, the city of Heidelberg, which tells us, as I mentioned earlier, uh, in regard to my comments on the Holy Catholic Church, we, these truths that we are learning together in this catechism service are truths that Christians have been learning truths that, that youth and boys and girls have been learning for 460 years. I mean, think about that. These are the same things that Christians and, and children have been learning for 460 years. But more than that, the Heidelberg Catechism was simply seeking to recover a tried and true, or the tried and true practice of catechesis. The early church uh, pretty soon after the death of, of the last apostles, they instituted this practice of catechesis or instruction, whereby they sought to train up not only the youth or the children in their churches, but also to uh, instruct converts into Christianity. And they sought to catechize the, the children, sought to catechize the new converts, even the church in general, in the rudiments of the faith. And they defined the rudiments of the faith according to four bodies of truth. The Apostles' Creed, the Sacraments, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. Now, these are the very bodies of truth that structure the Heidelberg Catechism. The Apostles' Creed, the Sacraments, which we're currently considering. And then we'll move on to the Ten Commandments and, and we'll conclude with the Lord's Prayer. And so you see, the Heidelberg Catechism wasn't seeking to, uh, to instigate a revolution. They were instigating a reformation trying to go back to that early practice of catechesis. And thus, these truths that we are learning are truths that not only are, are Christians have been learning for 460 years, but these are truths that Christians have been learning ever since the early church. Uh, so this, again, reassures us that we, we belong to a rooted and historic faith. So this morning we are confessing together Lord's Day 28, Lord's Day 28, and this is found in uh, page 884 and 885 of your catechism. And this morning we are going to be confessing together question and answers 75 through 77. So we have a, a fair a bit of content here, but as I mentioned, question and answer 77 is um, a quotation of, of our scripture passages. As always, I will read the question if you please respond by reciting the answer. How does the Holy Supper remind and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his benefits? In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup in remembrance of him. 
with this command come these promises. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup shared with me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of him who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. Question 76 asks, What does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? It means to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ and in this way to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it means more. Through the Holy Spirit who lives both in Christ and in us, we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so, although he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, and we forever live on and are governed by one spirit, as the members of our body are by one soul. Question 77 asks, Where does Christ promise to nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood as surely as they eat this broken bread and drink this cup. In the institution of the Lord's Supper, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The promise is repeated by Paul in these words. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Well, boys and girls, uh, which section, which main section of, of the catechism are we currently considering? Violet? Grace. Very good. And uh, what is the definition of true faith? Emilani? And, and what is the content of this faith? Isaiah? The Apostles' Creed. Very good. Now, what is the benefit of professing this true faith? Yes. Christ's righteousness. We are justified by faith, which means that we receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, where does this faith come from? From God, yes. 
And what member of the Trinity particularly? The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit yes. And what does the Holy Spirit use to create this faith in our hearts? Um, Noel? The sacraments. What else? Preaching, yes. So the Holy Spirit creates faith through preaching and then confirms and nurtures that faith through the sacraments. Uh, very good. Again, this shows us the importance of faith, the importance of gathering for corporate worship. What you get on Sundays are, are the means uh, that God has given us to strengthen and create faith. Now, here we are, uh, again, turning from baptism to the Lord's Supper as we are looking at the sacraments. And many of us here live long distances away from friends, family members. What are some ways in which, how do you keep in contact with people, loved ones who live long distances away from you? You write. You write, okay. Yes, we might write letters. Call, yes. FaceTime. FaceTime. We visit. Well, Vi visit. Noel. Call, yes. Yeah, there are many avenues that we can, we can make use of to keep in contact with um, loved ones. We can even see faces through Zoom, FaceTime. Uh, we can visit, make visits every now and again. Well, as we know, at the end of Luke 24 and in Acts chapter 1, Christ left this earth physically. He is physically absent from his people. And he told his people that he would not return again physically until the end of the age. And so how does Christ continue to foster a relationship with his people? If Christ is in heaven, we are on earth. Well, one, one of the reasons why he instituted the Lord's Supper was to continue to foster a relationship with his people during this time in which he is physically absent. So the Lord's Supper is given to us as a meal of communion, communion with Christ during this period of time in which Christ is absent. Now, one of the points that I've been drilling home the last few weeks as we've been looking at the sacraments is, again, this idea that the sacraments are God's playing field, that God is the actor, God is the doer. When you come into church on Sundays, you come into church not as the player, but as a fan coming to witness God on the playing field of his sacraments and even on, in his word, showing to us, demonstrating to us, proclaiming to us who he is for us in Christ. This is foundational. In baptism and in the Lord's Supper, God is the doer. Baptism is the playing field of God. The Lord's Supper is the playing field of God. Now, baptism and the Lord's Supper are united on that issue. However, when we zoom in, there are differences when it comes to baptism and the Lord's Supper. For instance, baptism is only to be administered once. We don't celebrate weekly baptism where we all proceed to the front and get sprinkled week in and week out. We are to be baptized once. Lord's Supper is meant to be celebrated frequently. Baptism is administered to adult believers and their children. The Lord's Supper is administered only to those who have made a profession of faith. So there are differences when we zoom in on these two sacraments. And we'll, uh, as we proceed in the weeks to come, consider a few of, of these differences and why there are these differences. But they are united in the sense that God is the doer 
in both of these sacraments, God is seeking to serve us, to strengthen our faith, to assure us of his good will towards us. Now, this Lord's Day is, is quite a hefty Lord's Day. Uh, there's a lot of content here. Lord's Day 28. Uh, question and answer 75 and 76 are essentially giving us the Bible's doctrine of the Lord's Supper. So you want to know what does Scripture teach about the Lord's Supper? It's found in questions 75 and 76. And then question 77 is essentially the, the proof text, the main proof text for this theology. Because you'll notice that question answer 77 is all about where does Scripture teach this, essentially. And then it quotes from specific passages in Scripture. It quotes from 1 uh, Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 11. These two passages are arguably the two most foundational passages that we need to dwell upon as we consider the meaning and the significance of the Lord's Supper. So the first point that we see in this Lord's Day is that Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. So notice how question and answer 75 begins. Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup in remembrance of him. With these commands come these promises. I mentioned this uh, a number of weeks ago when we looked at the sacraments in general. One of the, the principles or parts of the definition of a sacrament is that sacraments need to be directly instituted by God or by Christ. And so the reason why the Lord's Supper is a sacrament of the church, a holy sacrament of the church, is because Christ directly instituted it. Uh, this is the reason why we only have two sacraments and not seven, as the Roman Catholic Church does. So Christ is the one who instituted this meal and has commanded me and all believers to partake of this holy meal. Now, when did Jesus institute this meal? Now he was betrayed. What, does, do you remember the, the language that he uses to command us to partake of this? Ezekiel? Yes. He raises the, uh, lifts up the bread, raises the cup, and says, do this. It's an imperative. Do this in remembrance of me. Um, and so we are called to do this, meaning we are called to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, this is a gift that the Lord has given to the church, and thus we are to make use of it uh, for our own edification and assurance. And Scripture never tells us how often we should celebrate the Lord's Supper. We are given this imperative to do this, meaning we should be doing it regularly or frequently. And in the Acts, we see that the early church celebrated communion frequently, uh, so much so that Whenever the early church gathers on Sundays, they gather to hear the word and to break bread, which is a reference to communion. In, 1 Corinthians, in Acts, um, uh, Paul, when he's uh, preaching uh, to the individual who ends up falling out the window, uh, we hear that they, the church gathered on Sunday to break bread, meaning it was so frequent, it was such a frequent part of their, their Sundays that Paul can refer to the whole worship service as breaking, the breaking of bread. It was a synecdoche for the whole, 
the whole service. So we have this principle of frequency, and now many churches define frequency differently. Uh, you can celebrate once a month, and it can still be frequent. You can celebrate twice a month, it can be frequent. You can celebrate it um, weekly, it can be frequent. Uh, but the principle really is frequent. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 apply, uh, compares the Lord's Supper to man in the wilderness. How often did they partake of man in the wilderness? Well, daily. It was a frequent part of their physical nourishment. And so, again, we have that principle of frequency. So Christ institutes the Lord's Supper, and he commands us to make use of it for our good, for our spiritual nourishment and growth in Christ. The second point that we see, then, is that the Lord's Supper reminds and assures us of the gospel. The Lord's Supper reminds and assures us of the gospel. So, the reason why Jesus commands uh, me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup is so that he might remind and assure us of two specific realities. And you'll notice that the question portion of 75 uses this language of remind and assure. And you could really substitute these two terms for sign and seal. How does the Lord's Supper remind you, or remind you of the gospel? How does the Lord's Supper assure you of the gospel? It's really the same thing as saying, how does the Lord's Supper signify and seal to you the gospel and its promises? Now again, remember that road sign analogy that we looked at with baptism. If you're going to a city, you come across that road sign that says, you know, 10 miles to Chicago, 10 miles to Phoenix, or wherever you're going. And let's say at the bottom of that sign, it has this royal, or not royal, uh, this insignia of, of whoever put up the sign, the city, the state, or whoever's in charge of that. So you know it's an authentic sign. You know, it's not just some random person who put up a sign to confuse travelers. You can trust this sign that there are really only 10 miles to go until you reach the city. And thus, bread, wine, water, there's nothing magical about these elements, but they are true signs and seals that communicate to us gospel realities and promises. And when we exercise faith, we partake of the reality of those promises. So again, we see in this language in question answer 75, as surely, so surely. So as surely as we partake of these the ordinary bread and wine, so surely we partake by faith of this reality. And we, we saw that same language going on with baptism. As surely as our bodies are washed with water, so surely we can know that the filth of, of our sin which resides in our heart has been washed away by the blood and spirit of Christ. And so when we experience the bread and wine, when we handle the bread and wine, when we taste uh, the bread, when we taste the bitterness and the sweetness of, of the wine, we are meant to be reminded and assured of, of two particular realities. And what's that first reality that we are meant to be assured of here in question answer 75. His crucifixion, right? Just as we see the bread broken, uh, we can be assured and reminded that Christ's body was broken on the cross for you and for me. Just as we see uh, the cup communicated to us, so surely we can know that Jesus spilled his blood in our place. Jesus took responsibility for the curses of the covenant so that we don't have to experience the wrath of God. 
And so when you, when you handle the bread, when you, when you partake of the wine, it's meant to remind and assure you that on Good Friday, Jesus had you in mind. That his body was broken and crucified in your place. That his blood was spilled so that your blood uh, may not ultimately ever be spilled in the sense that you would experience the wrath of God. And that's, that's, that's very important because notice the personal element of this language. We're meant to be reminded and assured that when Christ was hanging on that cross, he had your sins in mind. I mean, just think about the sins that you currently are struggling with, the sins that you know that you are plagued with and that you need to work on, that you need to put to death. Jesus had those sins in mind and, has, and bore the judgment that those sins deserve. That's what motivated Jesus to go all the way to the cross. I mean, think about his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there's another way, let it, let it be, but not your will, but my will be done. What motivated him to continue on in perseverance was you. Not just a generic people that exist out there somewhere, but it was every single member of his sheep. And so again, when we talk about the idea of membership, Christ cares for his people individually, and thus his under-shepherds are called to care for people individually. We have that personal element of the gospel, which is brought out here in what the Lord's Supper is meant to remind and assure us of. Well, what's the second reality or promise that, that bread and wine remind us of and assure us of? He's actively feeding our souls, yes. That Jesus feeds and nourishes our souls. Now this comes from what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, or particularly verse 16. The Apostle Paul says, again, speaking to communion, he says, a cup of blessing that we bless, that we consecrate. Is it not a communion or participation in the very blood of Christ? The bread that's broken every time we, we celebrate communion. Is this not a communion or participation with the very flesh of Christ? So Paul speaks as if there's a real intimate union and connection when we celebrate communion with the human nature of Christ. So much so that, that the catechism can say that when we partake by faith, Jesus is feeding and nourishing your soul. Now, question and answer 75, again, calls us to be reminded and assured of, on the one hand, um, Jesus' crucifixion, the gospel promise. Uh, the second element is that Jesus feeds and nourishes our soul, which is related uh, to that, but bring out a slightly different element, is bring out this idea of union, communion with Christ. Now, question and answer 76 is basically explaining further that second promise. So what exactly do you mean that Jesus feeds and nurses your soul at the communion table. That may not be immediately obvious for us. Okay, we can kind of conceptualize how bread and wine are meant to remind us and assure, and assure us of Jesus' broken bread, or Jesus' broken body and his shed blood. But what exactly does it mean that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is presently active in feeding and nourishing our souls. That isn't quite as immediately obvious, and thus the catechism 
devotes a whole question and answer to what this means. And question and answer 76 is, is wonderful. It's, again, one of those highlights of the catechism. I think one of the, the most faithful and, and concise articulations of, of what really is going on when we celebrate communion by faith. So, uh, question answer 76, again, is, is asking, what, what, you know, what does it mean that, that Jesus feeds and nourishes our souls with his crucified body and shed blood? And wh- what is the first part of this answer calling us to? Or what's the first part of this answer in general? Correct, which are elements of what? Faith. faith, yes. It's calling us to faith. So the first thing that this teaches us that Jesus really only feeds and nourishes the souls of those who, 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 who profess faith. You know, one author I was reading this week said, you know, just, just as the best way to use food is to eat it, the best way to make use of good promises is to believe them. And so if the Lord's Supper is giving us gospel promises in visible form, the way we make use of them is by believing them. It's a call to faith. Our form that we oftentimes read before we administer the Lord's Supper says that faith is the hand and mouth of our souls. So the way in which we feed upon the body and blood of Christ is not physically, with our physical mouth, but it's through our sp- the spiritual mouth of faith. Faith is the hand and mouth of our soul. And so this catechism, or question answer 76, is first of all establishing the necessity of faith to truly partake of this meal. If you want Jesus to nourish and feed your body, faith is needed. Now, the second element of question answer 76 uh, directly explains this language of, of feeding upon the body and blood of Christ, or Jesus feeding our souls. Now, again, as we, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, we really have to wrestle with that language. You know, what does Paul really mean when he says the cup of blessing is a communion or participation with the very blood of Christ, and the, and the bread is a, a communion or participation with the very... Um, body of Christ. So again, Paul is not saying that, okay, when you participate with the, uh, partake of the Lord's Supper, the divine nature is present. That's not what Paul's saying. He's specifically referencing the human nature of Christ. He's saying that you have a participation particularly, of course you have a, part- a participation with the divine nature, but particularly you have a participation with the human nature of Christ, the body and blood of Christ. Remember Jesus' words, this is my body, speaking of the bread. This is the, uh, my blood, speaking of the cup. We have to wrestle with that language. What, what, does, what did Jesus mean? Uh, what, did, what did Paul mean? How, how can we have communion, fellowship, with the historical, actual body and blood of Christ if he is in heaven and we are on earth? Christ physically left this earth. In his ascension, he said he won't come back again until the second coming. And so how can Paul say that we have communion with the human nature of Christ if he is in heaven and we are, we are on earth? How does question answer 76 answer that question? 
How can we have communion with Christ if he is in heaven and we are on earth? Connected through and by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Yeah, so look at with, with me at question answer 76. Through the Holy Spirit, who lives both in Christ and in us, we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. The Spirit is that vital connection which connects those of us who are on earth to Christ who is in heaven. Now, this is what Ephesians 2, 6 says. But God, being rich in mercy, raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. One of the mysteries of the faith is that the Spirit uh, creates this union, this bond with, uh, with, uh, between his people, between Christ's people and Christ himself, who is in heaven. Or, or consider Paul's words in Colossians chapter 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, again, raised and seated with Christ, you are to seek the things that are above and set your minds on the things that are above. So again, one of the purposes of the Lord's Supper is to strengthen our identity as those who have been raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's who we are. And so when we come together on Sundays, we are coming together according to that identity as those who've been raised and seated with Christ. And thus, the Lord's Supper calls us to seek and set our minds in the things that are above, meaning the Lord's Supper calls us to live according to our identity. Now, notice how question and answer 76 continues and says, And so, although he is in heaven and we are, we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. This is the language that comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 29 through 30, when Paul is speaking about the analogy between Christ and the church and, and a husband and his wife. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. We are members of the body of Christ, and thus Christ takes responsibility for nourishing and cherishing the members of his body. That's how intimate this bond is between Christ and his people. Now, it's not as if we experience union and communion with Christ once a month, and after we get done eating the bread and drinking the wine, we cease to have communion with him. Because notice the language here. Uh, question answer 76 says, we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. For those of us who have faith, we're, we're always united to Christ, but the Lord's Supper is a time in which we are united more and more to his blessed body. So it's a strengthening of that already present union that we have with the risen Christ. Now, uh, John Calvin has wonderfully explains um, the, the meaning, significance of the Lord's Supper. Much of the catechism draws upon what he says in the Institutes. And he has a quote that is, I find profound uh, when he's speaking about this, this reality that we're, we're learning about in question answer 76. And he speaks about how all, you know, whenever you draw water in his day, again, the 16th century, there are many ways to, to get water. You can get it from a stream, a river, a well. But whatever avenue that you choose, that water comes from a particular source. And so he says that the human nature of Christ or the flesh of Christ is like this inexhaustible fountain 
by which the life of the Godhead pours into us. So we are united to this human nature of Christ, and the human nature of Christ in some way is that fountain that links the life of the Godhead to us who are sinful people here on earth. And that's part of what's going on in the Lord's Supper. The life of the Godhead is, is overflowing through Christ into his people. Now you might respond to that and say, this, I mean, this kind of hurts your head. <laughs> you know, this, this, this seems somewhat mystical. And I love what Calvin says. He says, uh, after he gets done explaining this reality, he says, now if anyone should ask me how this mystery takes place, I shall not be ashamed to confess that it is a secret too lofty for either my mind to comprehend or my words to declare. And to speak more plainly, I'd rather experience than understand it. There are many, most of the doctrines in the Christian faith, we can explain the what, but we can't really explain the how. You start thinking a little bit too much about the Trinity and your head's going to hurt. You start thinking a little bit too much about how Christ can be one person existing in two distinct but yet united natures, your head begins to hurt. When you start to think about how we can have union and communion with with the risen Christ, though we exist here on earth, again, our head begins to hurt. There's a mystery to these doctrines that we should embrace. And the reason why there's an element of mystery is because God is incomprehensible and we are finite. And thus, we, when we approach these doctrines, we, we reach a limit uh, to which we can understand. And we are to recognize that limit and embrace that limit and, and respond in doxology and praise and worship for the inexhaustible nature of who our God is. Now, uh, in conclusion, you know, boys and girls, um, as you know, to, to come to the Lord's Supper, we require a profession of faith. And when you know, youth come to make a profession of faith before elders, one of the things that we're looking for is whether or not you hunger for this meal. Not in a physical sense. Uh, you might be hungry at that point in the service, but that, that's for snacks after the service. But we mean a spiritual sense. Do you hunger to be fed with the promises of God made visible? Do you hunger to be assured of Christ's sacrifice on your behalf? Do you hunger to have Christ nourish your soul spiritually? You know, we've all had those ex- experiences where you sit down at the dinner table and you don't really like what your mom's making, and all of a sudden your appetite just goes away, right? So, but when, when the Lord's Supper is administered, does your appetite go away? Or are you hungry for this meal, this sacred meal, to be fed by the living Christ? And so, yes, Christ is absent from his people, but he told his disciples that he would send the helper. And when he sends the helper, it's actually to our advantage. It's better to have the spirit than to physically walk with Christ here on earth. And it's this helper who unites us to the risen Christ. And at this meal, the helper promises to make Christ present by lifting us up to himself. And when we partake of the bread and wine, this indeed is the closest experience that we have in this age to those words of Jesus to Thomas when he says, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. 